This is Quarantine Conversations. Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerbach. Is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to... Tara Ivanochko. Hi, Tara, and welcome to the Quarantine Conversations. Hi, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Tara, in this uh, podcast series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific studies. So uh, would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist? I'm a teacher and probably towards the getting into the senior part of my experiences here in science. Wonderful. Uh, now, Tara, you're an ocean, oceanographer, right? Uh, correct. What is an oceanographer or what is oceanography to you? An oceanographer generally is someone who studies the ocean and oceanography usually is associated with another field of study as well. So you'll commonly find people describe themselves as biological oceanographers or physical oceanographers or chemical oceanographers. And I've transitioned through my career, starting from being a biological oceanographer and then later on to being a geochemical oceanographer. So someone who is studying the chemistry of the mud on the bottom of the ocean. Oh, wow. <laughs> and how did you get into that field? Did you grow, grow up by the ocean or? Um... <laughs> no, I didn't. Well, actually maybe I did in some senses. My family, my grandparents, lived in Newfoundland and I did spend time in Newfoundland and spent time on small fishing boats with my grandfather out on the ocean, which was a formative experience. But I spent most of my time in Saskatchewan, which has no oceans whatsoever. <laughs> and I think it's sort of interesting. My father, for a period of time, was in the Navy, very small period of time. And I've heard stories that Saskatchewan people do very well on the ocean. Perhaps it's because of the the open view, you're used to the prairie view and long expanse view, and maybe you get the same on the ocean. So you don't have that uh, challenge of transition. That's a story, I don't know if that's true at all. <laughs> but how did I get into this field? I was at some point studying limnology, which is the study of lakes and going out on boats in Saskatchewan, small boats on small lakes, taking mud samples from the bottom of lakes. And when I realized you could do that in the ocean, I jumped ship, moved from small boats to bigger boats and came to UBC. And what are you studying with that mud? What's so fascinating about ocean mud? I spent a lot of time from my PhD and then afterwards in a postdoc studying changes in environmental conditions. So I used the mud to go back in time, small slices. So you take a, a very long core of mud and the surface mud is the most recent. And as you slice and go back down in depth, you're going back down in time. And you can use the chemistry to recreate what the life in the ocean was like, some of the biology that was there. You can also use it to recreate the conditions in which things were living, maybe some of the circulation patterns. And I could also start to look at some of the debris from terrestrial uh, situation, you know, the land nearby or the dust 
and how that was coming in and being deposited in the ocean. So it's like going back in time, doing a puzzle piece, reconstructing, reconstructing the environment, the ocean environment, and some of the environment um, external to the ocean. Oh, so it can, it was actually, fascinating to me. it can actually tell you about like ancient climates, right? Exactly, exactly. Oh. So in my PhD, I was focusing on how the Indian monsoon changed over time over the last 100,000 years and it, and it cycles back and forth from sort of being more intense to less intense with a cycle of about 1500 years. And I was looking how that cycle compared to other cycles we see in climate, say in the North Atlantic Ocean. And then later on uh, during my postdoc, I was focused on reconstructing the fjords on the west coast of, of Vancouver Island and identifying how they developed into what we have today. So those, those fjords during the last ice age were, were covered in ice. And then as that ice melted, they were exposed. And for a while, they were actually a little isolated freshwater lake. As, as the land rebounded and the ice lifted and the, the land rebounded, they were enclosed isolated freshwater lake. And then as sea level rose, they were flooded and now we have the marine fjords that we have today. So I was going through sort of the, the history of how that coastline was developed and so what we have now. And you can tell all that just from mud. That's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty fun. It's pretty fun. Although it's time consuming, has a lot of mud grinding. And there was a period of time, I was just talking about this with my sister the other day. There was a period of time when my thumb was locked in, a, in this position because of manual grinding of sediment, thousands and thousands of samples. And I got locked in this position for about six months. I couldn't move my thumb. So it, it, there's, some, there's some physical ramifications from getting involved in mud work, but uh, most of it is pretty fun. <laughs> for those who can't see, Tara was making an L shape with her, her thumb. And it, it looks like it would be very painful to be locked in that shape for quite a while. Oh, right. I forgot that this is a recording and not a visual. Apologies for that one. No worries, no worries. Um, so that's what you've been working on in the past. What are you working on today? Now I am, I don't have field work associated and I don't have the same kind of a research component in my job at UBC today. So my role at UBC now is uh, focused on, on teaching and education. And I am director of the environmental science undergraduate degree program. That means that I have been developing courses and thinking about holistically the education that environmental science students receive. I've been really focused on them doing projects and practical work that allows them to engage with the community and do some projects that make a difference in, in the Vancouver area. Transitioning from being a student and focusing on theory to being a practitioner and someone who can, who can tackle projects and do work that may, for, sort of for environmental and social good. And most recently, I have just taken on a position as the academic director of the University Sustainability Initiative. And though I'm just starting that job, that is going to be really taking the same perspective, but bringing it to the university as a whole. What do we need to do within education at UBC to, to really make a difference in the, the challenges that we have around sustainability? That's really exciting. You've done a lot within, um just the scope of the Department of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences. I'm really excited to see you get a, a university-wide um, uh, 
mandate, I guess, <laughs> to, to continue working with that. Um, you were involved with a really cool uh, project recently where your students put in a public art installation in a SkyTrain station, weren't you? Oh yeah, periodically I, well, one of the things that I, I try to do is to engage interdisciplinarily. Interdiscipline, I can't even say that right now. <laughs> um, and have students realizing the impact of science on society and engaging with others on questions that, that broaden everyone's horizon. And so recently I was approached by an artist who was embedded in the renovations of a SkyTrain station here in the Lower Mainland area. And she was inspired by the river that, that passed by the, the SkyTrain station and contacted me because I have some teaching resources online that allow people to identify phytoplankton. We built a, a collaboration and I had a team of students working on the project for a term where they went out into the river nearby the SkyTrain station and collected phytoplankton samples. They learned how to identify those samples and image those samples and then taught her about their history and, and um, what was happening in the river there over time next to the SkyTrain station. And the artist then transformed those into decals that were embedded in the SkyTrain station and built haikus around them that reflected her experience in working with us and what she learned from the scientists that were engaged in the project. It was very fun. And I'm looking forward to more potential art projects here on campus. That's, a, that's sort of a hold this space. There's one I'm working on, but I'm not going to disclose yet what it is. And if anyone's interested, uh, which SkyTrain station would that be? That's the 22nd Street SkyTrain station in New Westminster, I believe. Wonderful. Uh, now you mentioned you don't get into the field too, too often anymore. Um, but one thing I've heard is that uh, so many of our earth, ocean and atmospheric scientists get have been out in the field and just some crazy stuff happens in the field. So um, when you did go out into the field, did anything crazy ever happen to you? Well, I started, I took, a, I took a year off between my undergraduate degree and my master's degree. And in that period of time, I was hired as a seagoing tech for a while. And that was probably the, the time when I spent the most concentrated time at sea. So I traveled up and down the coast here, going in and out of every single fjord in Van, uh, on the coast of Vancouver, uh, sorry, the lower mainland, measuring oxygen concentrations in the bottoms of these fjords. I would say that those experiences were transformative coming into those fjords in the morning and the fog in the fjords and as it lifted watching the rivers pouring out of the mountains and, and cascading into the into the fjords and the, the water where we were that it was just stunningly beautiful. And whenever we were transitioning, we were always followed by dolphins playing in the wake. And sometimes there was bioluminescence in the water. So you could see this sparkling blue following the boat in the water. And it was a magical experience. I've also been in storms in the North Pacific where we've been locked down and seasick. And I've also traveled through the Panama Canal and, uh, and just seen the physical infrastructure of how people engage in, in um, shipping and, and moving goods from, from one ocean to the another and, and through that, that man-made space. All of those, I think, 
were just marvelous. I, in, in across the equator, I can't really talk about that one. <laughs> there's, a, there's this little, this, this little celebration ceremony, maybe slash hazing ritual that, that is part of someone on a ship crossing the equator where you have to face Neptune. That was quite interesting, I would say, but I got a certificate from that. So I have crossed the equator on a, on a boat and also during those trips really managed, you know, saw stunning saw turtles in the water, large tortoises and sea snakes in the water and scores of, of squid jumping at, at the lights of the ship and all of those things. And also the night sky, spectacular night skies. As someone who would probably get very seasick, um, I have to say you paint a really romantic image of um, being on a boat. And I think I would overcome my seasickness for that. If you can, it's worth trying. It's worth trying. <laughs> you mentioned you were measuring um, oxygen levels in fjords. Why? For what purpose? The fjords, the fjords of, as I was sort of mentioning earlier, the fjords of Vancouver Island and the coast here are these large cutouts that happened as the glaciers retreated and they're, they're inlets of water that, that come sort of finger into the coastline. And many of them have a little sill, sort of a, a barrier in underwater that you can't see, but it's there. And that, that sill barrier restricts the ventilation, the, the deep water from the ocean coming into the fjord and replenishing the oxygen in the bottom of the fjord. And it means that some of, some of these fjords have very, very low oxygen conditions in the bottoms of them. And under low oxy oxygen conditions, you, a few things happen. One is that you don't support biology usually. So there's sort of dead zones in the bottoms of these fjords that are low oxygen, but also you preserve for that same reason, you pre preserve sediment in the bottom of these fjords. So you can go to the fjords that have low oxygen and take cores so, and go back in time. And those ones are more high resolution. You have the ability to see more in detail in the past than you do if you go into a fjord that has a lot of biology, that has a lot of worms and, and you know, bottom creatures churning up the, the sediments at the bottom of the ocean, then the layers don't form as, as cleanly and you don't get as clear a picture. So we were just going up and down the coast to both understand the frequency of these oxygen events where oxygen might come in and refresh these fjords, but also finding fjords that might be good for science and looking into the past. That makes total sense. Um, as someone on the museum side of things, I know that like low oxygen environments are great for preserving um, artifacts and, and specimens. I know that a lot of uh, amazing shipwrecks are found in these low oxygen environments because they just there's nothing to decompose them. So it makes sense that the, the soil would be preserved um, more pristinely as well. Yes, exactly. So we get these stripes, little teeny stripes of what's deposited in the wintertime and then what's deposited in the summertime. In the wintertime, it tends to be dirt and, and terrestrial materials coming from the sides of the fjords. And in the summertime, it tends to be more biology from the surface. And, oh. and we get these annual layers over time if they're, if they're preserved really well. Oh, like tree rings. <laughs> exactly like tree rings. Yeah, you can get seasonal cycles from, this, from the marine mud. <laughs> um, now there are things that we all love about our jobs and things that we don't love so much. Uh, what's one of your favorite aspects of your work? 
Right now, my favorite aspect is, so I, as I said, I'm just starting this new job. I get very energized by new projects starting up. One of the keen things that I have right now is, is focusing on these new projects related to sustainability. That's very exciting to me. And I'm just energized to see what's going to come next. So that freshness of new projects and, and new possibilities is something about an academic job that I really appreciate. The, typically, I would say what I also enjoy so much is working with students. Under COVID, that's been quite restricted and now all of my classes are online. They're fine. I, I feel like we're still doing well, but I don't get the same joy out of engaging with people through a computer screen as I do engaging with them face to face. So that part is a little bit diminished under COVID. I'm looking forward to the opportunity when I can engage with the students again face to face. Well, I can attest to that. Um, every time I walk by your office, it's always crammed full of uh, eager students and you all seem to be having a great time. Um, but it, yeah, they're always in there. <laughs> yeah, now we have, we're scheduling Zoom meetings. It's a little bit different. Absolutely. And that actually leads me to my uh, oh, um, next question. How has COVID impacted your work? Right. So mainly through teaching. One of the things I have been doing in the department is helping coordinate the transition to online teaching. We now really are all face to face in our activities, including the typical labs that we run in EOS. And I have been trying to help people make sure that they have the resources so that they can develop appropriate online labs and and also thinking about how they're engaging with students in the online teaching. So that's been a big change in my in my focus, rather than thinking about developing opportunities for, for students in the field. I'm thinking about how are we making sure that we are still providing excellent education in this online forum. That's been quite a big switch. Then, of course, there's all the troubles with working from home and I have a family at home and we're all bumping into each other in terms of who gets access to the Zoom at what I'm, I'm teaching, my husband is also teaching, my children are studying. That's just, life has sort of impacted. So I guess in some senses, work and life has blended a lot more. There's positives to that and there's negatives to that. I heard someone say uh, that we're not working from home, we're living at work. Um, and yeah, I, those barriers are hard. It's, it's hard when they blend to compartmentalize in a healthy way to make sure that, that you can spend time with your family or your friends or the people in your life and you can do your work and they're not, they're not um, I don't know, sort of cross contaminating. Maybe I don't mean that in quite that word, but, but I don't like it when I'm thinking about work when I'm sitting at the table with the kids and I find that that's happening more and more. Mm -hmm. I personally, I really enjoy my, my daily commute because it allows me to just decompress or get ready for work. Um, it's a nice buffer space between uh, residential and, and work. That's physical activity is a huge thing that has really decreased. I actually now am coming into work because of the challenges I had uh, teaching and, and working from home. And that even just that small little little commute coming back and forth that I have makes a big difference to me. This is this is helped out. We have all these building restrictions of how many people can be in the building and all the rules that you have to do when you're in the building. But I am finding that coming here is allowing me to um, 
to be more effective, I suppose, and, and get a little bit more done. It was hard at home. Well, I'm glad you're able to work uh, in the office safely now. <laughs> um, now, one thing I, I find that our Department of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences or, or EOS uh, is a very welcoming place, but I do know that there have been some people who uh, had to struggle a little bit. So um, is there anything that's caused you to unfairly struggle in this field? I would say that I have been extremely well supported all the way through my undergraduate and two graduate degrees and now my job here. What do I struggle with? I suppose there are some times with balancing this maybe and this is not unduly actually this is everybody struggles with this but maybe as a woman I feel this a little bit more in a way that an academic job requires that you move your family around or you move your, your people around with you as you go from one experience to another experience. I did my PhD in Scotland and that did mean that I was bringing my family with me. Now, of course, any academic would do that. So that's not something undue, but I do think that it is something in an academic field to pay attention to that these, these expectations that we move around between universities that's done so that we're exposed to new ideas and we're not entrenched in one one viewpoint and we understand alternative ways of working it expands our horizons and all of those things are extremely positive but there is a challenge associated with that when you are moving people with you from place to place you're disrupting your entire family when you do that it's kind of like being a military family yeah there's aspects of that maybe we don't move as frequently as a military family but but really to be a successful academic, you do have to move periodically to, to demonstrate that you're capable of transitioning and functioning in a new environment. And like I said, getting insight from, from other labs and other work uh, cohorts of people. So it's an important part of it. But I would say that, that I have had great experiences. Like I said, as an undergrad, I was working in a lab out in the field, very well supported in what I was doing. When I came to UBC, I engaged in a small group. So oceanography at that time only had, there was 11 of us graduating from oceanography at that time. So we did have a really nice relationship with all of the faculty as undergraduate students. That was extremely positive. And as a graduate student, I was in a very small lab and that meant that I received a lot of resources and was able to travel, go to international conferences, very well supported in doing that. And I appreciated that extremely. I get, had great advice from my supervisors, some of it, most of it, which I did not take maybe, but it was actually excellent advice. And now as a faculty member at UBC, I'm really impressed with the initiatives. I know that there's some challenges facing, you know, at the university in, in diversity and women in science. We're always working to improve that. But personally, I have not bumped into too many difficulties along the way. Well, I'm glad, it, I'm glad, yeah, you've been treated fairly and you've had a positive experience and uh, hopefully more and more people will, will have that experience. I hope so too. I hope so. I would, I would strongly encourage people to come in uh, within Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences. I think that it's, it's a wonderful field to engage in. And, uh, and I do think that, that we appreciate and attempt to try and accommodate a variety of people and diversity of people. Although I know that that our department might not look like that from the outside, it's, it's really a wonderful place to work. That's great.
Well, Tara, th those are all the questions that I have for today. Um, did you have anything you wanted to say before I let you go? No, I just wanted to appreciate you, Daniel. You've been working hard through this COVID and I, I appreciate you reaching out and trying to share the stories of EOS with the broader community. You're always a smiling face and I've missed seeing you in the hallways as well. So I'm looking forward to the time when we can all be back together. Oh, thank you. And thanks for sharing your time and stories. Thanks for all your hard work. Um, again, as I said, I always see uh, students clamoring to get a chance to talk to you and you always uh, are giving them all your attention and time. So I know they appreciate you too and I'm sure they're missing having face-to-face -face contact with you as well. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash quarantine conversations.